today we have a stellar guest, Amanda Fries, who is a total slacker. Um, <laughs> wait till you hear what this woman is up to. She is a lecturer at UCLA in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Molecular Genetics, and she's a recipient of UCLA's Distinguished Teaching in the Life Sciences Award. She earned her PhD in Molecular and Medical Pharmacology at UCLA, and her dissertation research focused on engineering antibody proteins for use as highly specific probes for pet imaging. Okay, that's why I'm calling her a slacker. The way that I found Amanda, she was talking on the sex therapy listserv, and I just found everything she said fascinating. And I thought, wow, this is a woman who is outside of the realm of just the clinical perspective. And I really love the way her brain thinks in the scientific way. She's really interested in sexual education and science ed and communication and developing sex ed so that it's inclusive around gender and sexuality and science. So this is a new niche, really, that I think has to be developed, particularly when we're talking about women and sexuality, intersectionality and gender. And I think she has a really unique perspective. We are supported by Uberlube for sex and so much more. Whether you're a man, a woman, postmenopausal, or a new mom, this is a silicone-based lubricant that is not going to mess with your natural pH. And I know because I use it myself. It's got this amazing silky feel and it blends into your skin really easily and it doesn't leave you with that tacky feeling. You know what I'm talking about. If you go to uberlube.com and use promo code Dr. Tammy, you'll get 10% off. It's D-R-T-A-M-M-Y, Dr. Tammy, and they'll ship anywhere for free in the United States. It's a beautiful glass bottle, very discreet and luxurious. Uberlube, it's the best. Welcome to The Trouble With Sex, where we get up close and personal with leading experts to expose the naked truth about sex, love, and relationships. I'm Dr. Tammy. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you got into, first of all, your incredibly fascinating career, but also how that corresponds to your interest in sex and sex ed? Sure. Yeah, I've kind of taken a roundabout route into sex ed, but I studied biology through college and into grad school. Um, but while I was in college, I minored in women's studies and gender studies. And I found myself thinking at the time, wow, these classes are really interesting. I love the conversations we're having. I wish my science classes were more like this. Mm, interesting. Um, and I got my PhD. And now I'm lecturing at uh, UCLA, which I love in microbiology. But I still have this passion and this interest for the field of sexuality, for discussing gender and relationships. And so as I'm lecturing in microbiology, I also take time to study these things and to try to do my best to educate others. <laughs> Because you have nothing better to do. And you also started this Women in Science Support Circle through your graduate mm -hmm. program in bioscience to discuss gender-related issues experienced by women in the sciences. So tell us what that's about and what you're doing. The Me Too movement is happening everywhere. And academia has not been left out of that, although it's been a little slower to get started a lot of people face issues in academia, and particularly women, and even more so women of color. 
because these things have come up uh, and represent these barriers and obstacles to basically people who aren't cis white men, um, kind of being able to achieve higher ranks in academia, or even just like be able to do their work as graduate students and researchers um, safely and comfortably. I felt that in my experience as a graduate student and in listening to other people talk about their experiences, that we needed a space to basically support each other and to hear these things out. Because even at a place like UCLA, where there are tens of thousands of people, it can be really isolating when you're facing sexual harassment or gender harassment or anything like that. Um, It can be really hard to feel like you have people to talk to. And in addition to things like harassment, we also just wanted a space to celebrate ourselves and to feel empowered and to find ways to take up space that we deserve to take up in academia. And so myself and some colleagues put this group together and essentially we just gather women together each month and we choose a topic, whether or not that's um, bringing your identity to the table in academia, taking up your space, how to deal with maybe uncomfortable interactions at work. And we just share information. We support each other. It's a confidential circle, so things don't leave the group. I think it's been really, really productive. That's amazing that you're doing that. It's so helpful, I think, you know, in in academia, on college campuses, to have that support system. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a college professor. I understand what happens. Community is so important. Mm -hmm. Because you do feel isolated because it's not like you're hanging out with your other professors. You're in the classroom. Right, right. And then you leave and you do your job and you do your paperwork Mm -hmm. and you're in and out of there. So the gender issues you know, are partly exacerbated because of the isolation. Yeah, I agree. I'm a white cis woman. I face some challenges in academia just by virtue of being female, but they're nowhere near the type of challenges that, for example, a black woman or a woman of color from a different ethnicity would experience. Those barriers are heightened exponentially. And so it's not enough to just talk about, quote unquote, gender issues in academia because that might lead to people like myself, like a white woman, kind of finding support and some solutions that may not work for or may not be enough to address the barriers that a woman of color faces. And so we try to really bring that into the discussions that we have. And I hope that additional people on the campus will pay attention to that because it's extremely important. We can't only look at one lens. You can't only look at gender. You can't only look at race. You have to look at all of these things. It's great. And how do you think that's influencing our experience of sex ed in this country, too, sexual education? If children are getting sex ed at all, which they frequently aren't, a lot of the time it's not inclusive. Most of the sex ed that people are getting is, like, very heterosexual focused. You know, they're talking about a cis man and a cis woman. It's true. Even the pictures, like the posters oh, that they have oh, yeah. in elementary school, so where they show behind. penises and vaginas. First of all, they're internal mm-hmm. organs. But if they do have external, they're always white. <laughs> yeah, always white. And actually, there's been research into like how medical textbooks look. Almost always, the figures that are drawn in medical textbooks are white as well. That's so interesting. So there's heteronormativity and sex ed. So we're leaving out members of the queer community for whom a lot of the sex said may not even apply. And that's all right, because young people, people of all ages, regardless of their sexual orientation, gender identity, or their anatomy, everyone deserves to have good sex ed that will help them make responsible decisions, that will help them have an enjoyable sex life, that will help them maintain their health. Everybody deserves that. And so sex ed absolutely needs to be inclusive. And You know, if you're not saying from the very early age of sexual development that there are a lot of options for you Mm -hmm. and that this could be the way you feel or that could be the way you feel or this could be coming up or that feeling could be coming up, then you really don't give people the experience of 
you know, I'm normal no matter what. Absolutely. And you bring up a really good point, which is like even at a young age, hearing that is so important because some people are uncomfortable thinking about sex ed for very young children. But humans are sexual creatures, and we have a sexual development that can begin, that does begin in childhood. That's why I'm a huge proponent of comprehensive sex education, which essentially just means that you're giving people throughout their childhood and into an adulthood, you're giving them age-appropriate, medically accurate, comprehensive sex education. And so this means that when children are very young, like kindergarten, first grade, You're not going to be teaching them about the ins and outs, but you will give them, for example, the names of their body parts and teach them that those aren't things to be ashamed of. You know, explain to them that bodies are different. As those kids get older, you can give them more information, again, as it's appropriate, as they're developing, rather than leaving them just totally in the dark about their bodies and like whatever feelings they might be experiencing at these different ages. If you had to define what sex ed should be, what would you say? Like, how would you describe it? If you could change the culture, if you could have it the way you think it should be, what would you say? I think the model of comprehensive sex education is what I agree with and what I think that should be taught. Again, because it is age appropriate, we're not waiting until like middle school or high school, um, at which point kids have already started to develop and they have questions and they're probably wondering like, what's happening to me? So I don't think we should be waiting. We should be starting when children are young. Like what age do you think? I think as soon as they have some awareness of their own bodies. When kids become aware of their bodies um, and say, hey, what's this between my legs? We should be able to say, okay, you have a penis. Like here's generally how it works. And age appropriate, you know, you probably don't need to start explaining erections until your kids are a little older. We need to continue giving them information about their anatomies, When they start to have feelings about themselves or about other people, we need to start explaining not just about sex or anatomy, but also how relationships work, how good communication within a relationship works. Consent has become a much bigger part of the conversation about sex and relationships, and I think that's absolutely terrific and really, really late, but I'm glad it's getting there now. So talking about consent, talking about how to say what you're comfortable with, what you want, what you don't want. Part of the definition of what sex ed should include consent. Absolutely. Should include a conversation about what that means and how do you Mm -hmm. define it. And Mm -hmm. a study just came out that said that more than half of all young people would not define themselves as purely heterosexual. Yeah, right. That should be no surprise, right, Mm -hmm. to some of us who are sex therapists or to you who Mm -hmm. are a young person (laughs) and on an academic campus. Is that also something that should be part of sex ed? Like, should we have a conversation about gender and sexual orientation? Absolutely. Because like you said earlier, what about when these kids grow up and will they ever receive the message like, I'm normal, I'm okay? You have to start giving that message early. We all have grown up with messages that we're probably desperately trying to undo And I think that is the perfect example of one that we could fix early on by telling kids, you know, you may feel this way about other people. You may not. Some of your peers might. And it's all okay. What we want you to focus on, regardless of who you may feel attracted to, is how can you explore that responsibly in a healthy way, again, with consent. Um, I want kids and adults, people in general, to be safe. I want them to be healthy and I want them to be happy. And I think that sex ed is absolutely a part of that. Okay, so I have to ask you a question. You're the 
perfect person to ask this, especially because one of your earrings is a DNA strand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's reminding me of it. Uh, you know, a study just came out that said that they can't determine by genetics a person's sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a super controversial study because it could lead to some abuse by people who are saying that if we just determine someone's sexual orientation or gender even by their social upbringing, then that leads that could lead to some abuse. As a geneticist, you lecture on molecular genetics. Where do you stand on that? Like, how can you bust that open for us? Right. So I believe what the study said was that they didn't find evidence of a single quote-unquote gay gene, but that in a survey of people's entire genomes, that it was more likely that there were numerous genes involved. And we find this to be true for a number of different conditions, particularly other conditions that deal with like psychology and mental health, that there is no one gene. There's just multiple genes. And that's kind of makes sense. Humans are complicated. We've got a lot of genes in there turning on and off and resulting in different manifestations, you know, and who we are and what we look like and how we behave. So, you know, finding one magic gene doesn't seem that realistic. Yeah, it doesn't. To use a gene or the presence of a gene as an excuse to accept someone, like another fellow human being, I just don't even agree with that logic in the first place. I know. If there's a gay gene and it makes some people more comfortable with who they are, thinking that it's something genetically determined, cool. I support people's desire for that. And if there's not, I think that's fine too. For me personally, I don't think it should matter whether or not there's one gene or 10 genes. I think it's more important. I'll just go back to what I just said. I want people to be safe, healthy, and happy. And I think that regardless of your genes and regardless of your sexual orientation, everybody deserves that right. And so I haven't frankly paid too much attention to the study because it wouldn't change my mind either way. So how would you integrate this idea of, you know, what things are inherited and what things aren't into sex ed? I'm not sure if I would talk too much about like inheritance, but there's definitely a place for biology and genetics in sexuality. For example, when it comes to gender identity, One of the most interesting things that I find in the natural world are that there are animals that can change their gender and change, well, when we say animals, we typically mean like change their sexual anatomy. Whether or not gender exists in animals is a really interesting question. They can change their anatomy? Yeah. For example, there are these fish. I don't recall the name of the fish, but there are some fish that live in these communities and like all of the fish will be female except for one fish, which is male. And if that male fish dies or something, then one of those female fish will go through this morphological change and actually change its body to become— To be the male? The male fish. What? And so nature— It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, we think it's crazy, right? Because we love to put things in these boxes. You're male or you're female. Wow, that's like blowing my mind right now. It's amazing. And those fish aren't the only one. There are other animals who do this, too. So that, to me, just turns this whole idea of biological sex and sexual orientation— on its head. Like, it doesn't matter what your genes are. That fish's genes didn't change. It still has the same genes. It just, like, turned some on and off. That's wild. It's amazing. Gender is a spectrum. Sexuality is a spectrum. And people like to put gender into these boxes of, like, man and woman. Biologically speaking, people tend to associate man with XY chromosomes and women with XX chromosomes. And we know, like scientists know, and I hope that people will incorporate this more into sex ed, that it's just not that simple. So, for example, about 1% to 2% of the population is intersex, which means that they have genitalia that are like not determinant of what we typically think of as like male or female. 
some people will say, okay, if you're a penis, you're a man. But if you can't determine that based on someone's anatomy, then where do you go from there? And by the way, that's another reason that we need to be more inclusive in sex ed of people who don't fit into those like neat anatomy boxes. Mm -hmm. So there's anatomy, which does not support these categories. In the genes and the chromosomes themselves, not everybody is XX or XY. There are a number of different conditions where somebody can inherit different numbers of the sex chromosomes. You could have, for example, one X and like two Ys or something really? like that. Yeah. There's a series of conditions that can result from that. So where do these people fit into those two categories, you know, man or woman? It's harder to decide because I believe everyone deserves to feel safe, happy and healthy and have free expression of their sexuality. I don't think that we should tell those people who are intersex or who have, you know, a different number of sex chromosomes, oh, you don't fit in our categories, you're on the outside. I think we need to tear apart the categories mm. and say, how can we support everyone having a healthy expression and acceptance of their sexuality and their bodies? You also talk about, like, adults needing sex ed. That would yes. be a really fascinating adult sex ed course. We'll be right back after the break. I'm thrilled to announce that I'm now bi-coastal and not only offering intensives on the East Coast, but offering half day, full day, and even weekend intensives at my oceanfront office in Santa Monica. If you live on the West Coast and you want to deepen your intimacy with your partner or rediscover your connection as a couple or even reconnect to yourself, I'd love to help you on your journey. Space is limited, so book your appointment now. Go to drtammy.com or email me at drtammy at the trouble with sex.com. That's Dr. Tammy at the trouble with sex.com. Put your relationship first to make love last. How would you combine STEM and sex ed, the combination <laughs> of the sciences, that field with sex ed? Because sex ed has traditionally been sort of a soft science mm -hmm. because it's not really based on science. Mm -hmm. It's based on religion. Mm -hmm. And which is why we have all these moral values around it, which is why it's been repressive and illogical mm -hmm. and which is why we don't have it in schools or if we do have it, it makes no sense at all. A lot of the research in sexuality is like in the social sciences, yeah, exactly. which is not a bad thing. I mean, that's where that research should happen. I'm not sure like it's not really my goal to combine STEM and sex ed. For me, they actually are sort of separate. What I would say is that my experience as a scientist and in academia has really like fostered a curiosity. And I think that's something that sex ed and people curious about sexuality can definitely embrace is their curiosity about sex, about themselves, about their partners. So maybe we can take a page from scientists and just encourage people to be more curious about things. That's a great answer. What do you think the biggest misconceptions are in sex ed? One of the biggest ones that has been hard to shake is this idea that when we say sex, we mean sexual intercourse, like penis, penis and, and vagina, vagina. <laughs> intercourse. PIV, we call it. PIV, yeah. My dad used to say no P in the V without the C, um, which was really— What's the C? The condom. Oh. Yeah, so I'll never forget that. Whenever I hear PIV, it's what I hear. What no do you think of? No P in the V without, without the, the C. C. PVC. When we say sex, frequently I think people think of this penis and vagina, heterosexual intercourse. And I think that that does all of our sexual experiences such a disservice mm. because it's leaving out all of like the wonderful experiences you can have that aren't penis and vagina intercourse. Totally. Touching, kissing, oral sex, like 
literally everything else, when we say sex, that's not really what we mean. Agreed. And so one thing that I would love to see more people thinking and talking about is when we say sex to like include all those awesome things that go along with it, not just intercourse. And going along with that, another misconception, kind of like a common belief, is this idea of foreplay as just like a preamble to that mm, penis and vagina intercourse. Um, because when you call it foreplay, like clearly what you mean by that is it's just like the appetizer on the way to the main event. It doesn't event. really count. It doesn't really count. It's going to be temporary. Right. And I think that is really a shame for people for whom that quote-unquote foreplay might actually be really enjoyable. And mean everything. And that's yeah. like the main course. Exactly. I agree. So I think changing our definition from intercourse as sex to just like everything on the menu is sex. Exactly. I think that would be wonderful. Exactly. I love that. So we should call it something else besides foreplay. Like, oh, that's what I was thinking too. Yeah, we have to ask your dad. <laughs> He'll come up with something good. So other misconceptions, basically everything you learned in porn um, <laughs> or I wish that you hadn't learned. Um, and I'll qualify that and say mainstream porn. There is some good sex positive, educational and like healthy porn that exists Feminist out there. Porn. Feminist porn. But mainstream porn, which is usually the free stuff that is easily accessible, just sends so many bad messages. And I know you have talked about this on a previous episode. So to recap, you know, things that porn tends to be pretty focused on the male gaze. In the mainstream porn that I've seen, it's like everything is in such a big rush. Like, can we just slow down? Um, it doesn't need to be that, you know, penis and vagina. Get into the male finish Get line. In, exactly. The money shot. Exactly. That's the focus. Um, and there's so little communication that is on display. What? In porn. Uh, 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 that's, that's not it. communication. Communication about consent, about desires, about wants. Those are so important. Consent and porn? Imagine that, right? I mean, it'd be interesting to try to make it sexy. I, I think it really can be. You know, there's this idea that it's not. I remember on OkCupid, the dating site, there's like this set of questions you can ask and see if your answers matches up with someone else. And one of the questions is, how much communication do you like during sex? And one of the multiple choice answers is um, just enough to get things going. And another one is like lots. It's all about the talk. And whenever somebody would write, you know, just enough to get things going, I'm like, no, that's absolutely <laughs> not the right answer. You should be communicating the whole time because the moment you stop communicating is the moment that you don't know whether or not your partner is having a good time. You may not be having a good time yourself and you don't know how to say that. You might not be able to communicate that something is really good. And so I'm such a proponent of communication before, during, and after. And I think if you're talking about like, hey, this feels really good, how is that not sexy? That's great. So focusing on the positives and um, learning to give and receive some graceful feedback for some of the things you wish were different, those are great and really important parts of communication about sex. Those are great. And I do think you are going to have to start a whole movement around adult sex ed. Oh, I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a question from a listener, and it's from Bree, who's from Brooklyn. She says, I have a kid in fourth grade, and I'm wondering what's being taught to her, and what do I need to teach my kid that's not being taught? Really good question that I'm sure basically every parent has. Like, what is my kid learning? Am I okay with it? First of all, sex ed really differs state by state. There are only 24 states plus the District of Columbia that actually require any sex ed. In most of the states that are doing it, it's not always like regulated. 
So she could call her school district and request a copy of the curriculum or to know. Oh, good to know. Mm -hmm. Based on what she finds out there, she could then decide, are there things I need to add here? Are there things that I want to discuss further with my child? And for her to learn how can she then get sex ed, she has to get educated herself, right? And I don't know Bree's age, but depending on how old she is, I'm willing to bet that she probably didn't get great sex ed in school herself and maybe hasn't really been, depending on her interest, may or may not have learned things in the meantime. So... I would encourage her to seek out some resources. One of my favorite websites is Scarletine. I love Scarletine. They're so good. So it's S-C-A-R-L-E-T-E-E-N. It's great for young people. It's, It's great for everyone, including adults. They have amazing resources on there about everything under the sun that has to do with sexuality, including things for different ages. And so Brie could go there, read a bit about things that she might then want to discuss with her child and go from there. I would suggest that she seek out a freelance sex educator in her area. So there are some people that will, for example, hold a workshop or a seminar or teach a class. And frequently they'll do these on like set topics or Brie could say, hey, me and my parent friends would really like a class on like how to talk to our kids about sex. And then she could find an educator to hold a workshop or a seminar like that. That's a good idea. And then for Brie herself, since she's an adult, and again, I'm all about everybody getting sex ed to make up for some of those misconceptions, some other good sources of sex ed for adults would be like a sex shop in the area. They're some of the most progressive places to actually get classes like that. So they'll have workshops and classes. Like Babeland. Yeah, the Pleasure Trust in Los Angeles is really good. And I think they might have a New York location as well. And then seeking out things that kind of like resonate with those ideas of like healthy and consensual sex. So you can find resources that will talk about those things. And if they're not discussing consent, if they're not talking about like pleasure for all parties involved, I would avoid those resources. I think my book, Getting the Sex You Want, is a great resource. I agree. She should start there. Thank you. you. (laughs) So uh, before we end, Amanda, can you give our listeners one tip I mean, you've given them such great advice, and you've really thrown out a lot of things that people can work towards mm-hmm. to educate themselves and their children. What do you recommend that our listeners can do today? As a scientist, I would recommend everyone to be curious. Whatever feelings you have about your body, about your sexuality, whatever you're experiencing in or out of a sexual experience, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, take the next step and just ask yourself why. Like, why am I feeling this way? Why do I have this thought? Where does this come from? And from there, you can really learn so much and go so many places and really expand and broaden your horizons, which can be really fruitful in terms of developing your sexual identity as an adult. So just be curious. And along the way, as you're being curious, accept yourself. One of the best things that I've learned for myself is just not try to shove myself into some box or like force my sexuality to be one way. Whatever you're feeling, however you are, is perfect the way it is. Nice. That's a lovely way to end. I think we'll just stop right there. Okay. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being here today. Thank you. It's you're, really been a pleasure. Thanks for all the work that you're doing in the world. And for everyone listening, you are a valued member of our Trouble With Sex community. If you have a question, you can go to Dr. Tammy at thetroublewithsex.com or go to our website, The Trouble With Sex. This episode was brought to you by Uberlube, the luxury lubricant. To find out more, go to thetroublewithsex.com or email me at drtammy at thetroublewithsex.com. Join our mailing list follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, or send me a question. 
The Trouble with Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is by Flavor Lab, New York City. Our LA studio engineer is Aaron Steinberg. This episode was mixed by Eric Stern with music by Bruce Hirschfield. Thank you.